And so what we look for in founders are certainly you want to have the conviction, you want to have the drive, you want to you know, have this keep you up at night. You're not a hammer looking for a nail or, uh, you know, uh, somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur for the sake of doing it, but you are driven by a burning problem that you believe needs to be solved. So that's great. But you have to be adaptable uh, and willing to, to, um, to change as things come your way. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Our guest today is Dina Shakir, who is living proof that a nonlinear career can be extraordinary. Dina is a partner at Lux Capital, a top venture capital firm. There, she's received a lot of recognition for her work and her emphasis on diversity. She also sits on several boards and contributes to Forbes, that is when she's not being featured. But she actually started very near us here in Mountain View, where her parents immigrated from Iraq. Her career has taken pretty much everywhere, even through the White House. And today, it took her here. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Dina. Thanks for joining me this morning. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited uh, when Renee Ryan mentioned like, oh, you should uh, invite Dina to the podcast. I was so excited. You have quite an interesting background. Can you tell us more about growing up, being a first generation immigrant? Absolutely. Happy to. Um, yeah, so I am a, a rare Bay Area native. When I say that to uh, people here, especially in the peninsula, um, they kind of forget that there were actually people here before Silicon Valley was was, was <laughs> what it is. But uh, I was born in Mountain View. and um, But my story really starts before that. My parents, um, as you mentioned, are both immigrants from Iraq. And my dad actually escaped in, uh, in the early 70s. Um, and it's kind of a crazy story. But, you know, he essentially had to be smuggled in a car, uh, you know, uh, pretending to be a 16-year-old boy when he was 22 or 23, driven to Syria and then Lebanon in order for him to get a visa to come to the U.S. where he had already applied for his residency. Um, and he ended up initially at Columbia in New York City, where he had um, some family and then made his way to the Bay Area. He came for, I think, a conference at some point at Stanford and really fell in love and ended up finishing his residency at Stanford. And that's why, you know, a decade later, I was born in the Bay and not Baghdad. Um, and so that really had a very profound impact on my kind of ambition, my career trajectory, growing up in, you know, the paradise that is, um, you know, that that is this area and recognizing the good fortune of um, really the luck and, um, and, 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 and how I had this sort of urgency to pay that forward, especially after, you know, uh, the Gulf war, a decade of sanctions on Iraq, another war, nine 11, and really just seeing the country of my parents' origin, you know, torn to shreds. Um, that that's really what drove in me a desire to, to pay it forward. Yeah. And, um, I think sometimes, uh, being the, first-generation immigrant, I think there's a lot of people here in the U.S. And I'm an immigrant, so I'm always curious sometimes what it feels like to be the first generation because I'm raising one. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things I, I thought was really interesting, how you hustle to, to pay for your college, which mm-hmm. is probably something that you did not have to, but you did anyway. 
And where does that drive come from? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think a lot of that drive just in general came from recognizing, uh, again, how fortunate I was that I couldn't take the responsibility of my um, education lightly. You know, it was education that enabled both my parents um, to to make their way here. Um, and, and I owed it to my long lost cousins in Baghdad who couldn't even go to elementary school, let alone make find their way uh, to Harvard. Um, and so, uh, you know, and part of that was also just this sort of sense of challenge. Like, you know, I went to a public school in, in, in California and uh, not a lot of people went to school on the East Coast, let alone went to an Ivy League or went to Harvard. So it was kind of challenging myself that I could, I could get in, but then how was I going to, you know, uh, t- to pay for it? And of course, I was fortunate enough to, um, you know, to have, um, you know, two working parents, but my, um, you know, we had a number of personal issues in our family at the time. So it really was helpful for me to be able to to be financially independent. Um, so I won a number of awards and things like that. Um, when I was in high school and I worked the whole time that I was in school, it was just important for me to, to be financially independent. And most of those jobs were, you know, educational to some extent and enabled me to further, you know, get the experience um, to, to help drive my later decisions. Some of them were not so glamorous, but that's part of growing up. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you learned a lot from non-glamorous jobs sometimes. Totally. Especially, it's good to have when you're young, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Keeps keeps you humble, keeps the chip on your shoulder. And um, that's still very much part of who I am now. And I think one, one thing that um, anyone who knows me well would say, which is that um, I, I work very hard. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I noticed that you also had your first company while in college. Can you tell us more what it is and what did yeah. you learn from that experience? Yeah. You know, it was interesting because when I uh, left California to go to school uh, at Harvard, it was 2004. And so, you know, uh, certainly past the first dot com and you kind of entering into this this new wave that we're in. But it wasn't quite the Silicon Valley that it is today. It wasn't quite yet a thing to, you know, dr- drop out and, 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 you know, move to Palo Alto. In fact, I had a number of friends who were involved in those early days of Facebook. And I remember witnessing that. So for me, when I, um, you know, co-founded that company, it was my freshman year of college. And it wasn't because I thought I was going to, you know, hit a gold rush, um, and, and make money. It was again, driven by this idea of impact. And I, Specifically, it was an e-commerce company that was uh, enabling artisans in emerging markets to, to take their products and bring them online. So sort of kind of like an Etsy meets a, um, you know, a, a, um, a Kiva, if you will. Back then, you know, eBay was just starting. I was a very early adopter of online shopping. Um, but I was also seeing a number of friends um, in school who were studying abroad or who came from other places and sort of this idea of, bringing items back and enabling this exchange. And so that that was what the company was. I did it with a number of friends from undergrad, uh, as well as from MIT. Um, you know, it was not exactly a big success story. We ended up selling it for parts, but it was a very valuable experience. Uh, little did I know that I would end up, you know, many years later in the tech world um, myself. But uh, that, that experience certainly informed a lot of, of, you know, future decisions, aspirations, and just empathy with, uh, with founding. What was the part that you felt that you remember that was that that you still remember to this day is the things that you learn that's still relevant? 
so many things. I mean, you know, from company formation to choosing your co-founders to, um, you know, eventually the decision to sell because we realized that this was not something we could scale while we were in school. And that, you know, the idea that you got to go all in and that, you know, that this is starting a, a, a company that will be venture backable is not a side business. It's, it's something you, you, you give it all to and making that decision ultimately to stay in school and, um, you know, um, and, and pursue that, you know, those are all pieces of the pie that, um, you know, that go into starting a company. So once you finish, uh, I, you know, there's so many different ways to get in, to become an investors and everybody has a unique way. Yours definitely is very unique. Can, mm-hmm. can you tell us more about that journey after you finish and sold that company when you're an undergraduate? Yeah. So, I mean, I can tell you, um, first of all, I did not make a lot of money from that sale. Like I think I probably, if I were to go back, mostly lost money. So that wasn't exactly what turned me into an investor. And, uh, and that was my freshman year. So I went on to do, you know, many other things. And I really did not think I would end. I don't, I don't think I even knew what a venture capitalist really was at that stage. I mean, this was also early days of VC, but I didn't, um, you know, study computer science. I didn't do anything really remotely healthcare related. I mean, despite my heritage, my father, my grandfather, many aunts and uncles, my mother, you know, coming from the sciences and from medicine, much to their disappointment, I did not go down that path. I think I might have written pre-med on my application um, until I realized it would require taking organic chemistry. And that would be, that was, what was the end of that? Um, but, you know, I did always have a lifelong fascination with, uh, with health. It's just not what I studied or what I thought it would end up doing. Um, and I was pretty far from finance or investing as well. So I thought I was going to be an anthropologist. That was my dream. I thought I was going to do a PhD and become a professor. Uh, at some point, I thought I would pursue journalism, which was a big passion of mine in, co- in, in high school. I started a new newspaper. I'd written a lot. I'd done a lot of public speaking. You know, journalism is sort of vocational anthropology. But again, I was always driving toward this North Star of impact. And at the time, in 2008, when I graduated, I had this really myopic view that you could either do well and and by that, I mean financially well and make money. Um, and for most of my classmates, that meant going into Wall Street or maybe consulting. Um, or you could do good. And that would mean probably not a lot of generational wealth, but maybe you'd go into nonprofit or maybe you'd go into, you know, um, public sector or maybe journalism. So I didn't really have this sense that in that Venn diagram that there wasn't potential overlap. And, you know, thinking back, this is again, right before that, the financial crisis in 2008, um, 47% of the, of my class, um, the year before. So the class before me went into Wall Street or consulting. That's literally just what you did. Uh, And I gave the graduation speech for my class and the speaker for, you know, right before me was Ben Bernanke. Uh, So just to give you a sense, in fact, if you, if anyone goes back and finds that video, you'll see that I actually turn around to thank him and he had disappeared from the stage. So maybe, you know, maybe shit was starting to hit the fan. Um, But, uh, but, you know, it was an interesting time for our economy, for uh, our political uh, system. It was, you know, the election of 2008. I, I ended up going to grad school in DC and it was right as Obama was elected and inaugurated. And, you know, um, that, that was also a, a very formative for me being in DC d- during this, this, this shift, this transformation. Um, and while I was interning, um, as a journalist, I happened to do what pretty much all journalists in DC do, which is cover, you know, the white house. And, and that's eventually what led me to, um, to work actually for the administration. I was covering a speech that president Obama gave in Cairo in 2009, 
Uh, it's often known as the Cairo speech. Sometimes it's it's called the the New Beginning speech. But it was really him setting forth a new way of doing development and diplomacy with the Muslim world that was grounded in dignity, that was grounded in education, and that also was was promoting entrepreneurship as a better way of mm-hmm. enabling sustainable development. And you know that having grown up in in, in the Bay, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley, starting my company, I really believe that this was a much better way to ultimately drive toward a future, you know, without an, a 9-11 and without this sort of, uh, you know, terror propagation and, and poverty and so on. So I abandoned my, uh, you know, my journalism dreams to join the administration. And I did that for a few years. Um, you know, and, and there's sort of this pattern of every, every career step I take kind of led me to the next one. So I cannot say that I had a 10-year plan and certainly venture was not on that roadmap or even mm-hmm. tech. But if you look back in time now, 2009, 2010, that's, that's when I started doing this work. It was also a really interesting time back here in the Bay. It was right as, you know, as we call it now, software starts eating the world. Some of the iconic, you know, now storied venture firms, A16Z and others were getting started. Um, Facebook and, and uh, you know, Twitter, all these companies were also starting to recruit top talent. I was coming out to the Bay for work because I worked on public-private partnerships and I was witnessing this this shift, this sort of uh, center of gravity moving both physically out west, but also, you know, in terms of where the talent was moving. It wasn't necessarily Wall Street as much anymore. You mm-hmm. saw, you know, I mentioned Harvard, you saw that the, the, the most popular class start to move from ec 10 to CS10, that technology was no longer a separate sector, but a way of doing a lot of things better, a mm-hmm. way of achieving perhaps impact which was my goal. So I was witnessing that. I was seeing what was happening in the region where I was from, which I had studied, the Arab world. And that's when the Arab Spring was 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 also, uh, you know, kicking off. And now looking back in retrospect, uh, I think a lot of us maybe had more hope back then than, than we do now about how things would go. But I was witnessing change, revolution on the ground in a way that was accelerated through technology, not that I think it was started by technology, but that also gave me an impetus to learn product. I knew that I needed that that that, that technology was not going to be a separate thing. Anything I wanted to do, I needed to learn how to do it. And that was a really tall order for somebody who had not taken, you know, uh, a technical class really since high school, who had never even worked in the private sector. Um, and so, you know, that's a whole nother podcast if you want to talk about how that ended up happening. But it was a very long journey with a hell of a lot of rejections and, um, and you know, persistence. But it eventually ended up getting a pretty awesome role at uh, what was formerly Google.org, which is a different organization than it is today. Um, and at the time, it was really focused on the idea of product with social impact. And so that's kind of how I made my way back to Bay. It's interesting you mentioned that you get so many rejections when you transition to go to the tech side because you never had that experience. You would think with somebody with a lot of the success and also the resume and part of the White House, all this stuff, you, people would assume that that should be easy. But 
that's not the case. None either. of it was easy. It's still not easy. None of it, it, none of it is ever easy, but especially at that time, because this sort of, you know, uh, as it's now become known, this revolving door between DC and Silicon Valley, the sort of exodus of like, especially a lot of Obama folks out here hadn't really started. Both my husband and I worked um, in, in, in the administration. And when we came out here in 2012, I can't even tell you how many emails we would get or texts or calls a week from colleagues who were starting to think about coming out here. And and now actually we have so many friends that have made their way here, but that wasn't happening yet. We were sort of one of the one of the one of the you know early ones to to make that shift. So it wasn't quite clear at the time how that experience would be would would lend itself to a role there. And I also knew I did not want to do policy and I didn't want to do PR. I didn't want to do the, the the sort of orthogonal parts of tech that could have been more directly related to what I did before. Not because they're not valuable or interesting or, or not because I wouldn't be good at them, but because I really, it, for me, it was about learning and I needed to be at the heart of product because mm-hmm. from what I had observed, that was the heart of, of tech. And so that's, that's eventually um, what I did do. And I spent a number of years doing that, starting off at Google.org, but eventually making my way into, uh, you know, other uh, parts of the, of the dot com. This is all before Alphabet. And that's eventually how I landed in healthcare. And it was that experience in health at Google that led me to venture. Isn't it funny when you put in your uh, college application, pre-med, and then do anything and just come about uh, full it's circle? Crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> It's my, yeah. And you know, it's so funny. I think up until a few years ago, my dad was still telling me, and mind you, I'm in my, uh, I guess, officially late thirties now, but back then, uh, not that long ago, my dad was still telling me I could go back to medical school. (laughs) (laughs) You still can. (laughs) (laughs) I just like to, you know, pretend diagnose now and, uh, you know, converse with MDs, but, uh, but yeah, I, you know, it is something that I guess I knew at an early age I had an interest in, and I feel very lucky that I get to, um, to work in this industry now. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group, Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So now that you're you're in healthcare, you were in Google Venture at some point too, and now at Lux, what part of the the experience that you learned through being in, being an anthropologist, journalist, diplomat, all those things—I'm uh, sure it gives you a different perspective compared to your colleague who did not have that experience. How do you think you stand out? Yeah, well, you know, the shift into into healthcare was an interesting one. So I got to—I was on a team that used to be called NBD, New Business Development. Um, lots of uh, actually. VCs had their roots on that team back in the day. But our job was to be the first non-technical person to come in whenever there was some moonshot idea, Um, you know, maybe a self-driving car or maybe, you know, a a data set that could lead to, you know, a a different way of diagnosing um, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so it was really a privilege. We get to, we got to kind of dive into these ideas and see if they would become commercially viable businesses uh, or, or products. So I got to work on like 50 different products and many of them never saw the light of day, though they could have been cool. Others turned into, you know, Loon and Waymo and Verily. And so I sort of um, raised my hand slash kind of got assigned um, to work on health when Google was uh, thinking about um, building and launching its first HIPAA compliant product, which would have been, a te- which was a telemedicine product. Now, as you may know, uh, Google has sort of a rocky history in healthcare and there's sort of 1.0 of what used to be called Google Health around kind of 2006, 2007. Frankly, like many things at Google was ahead of its time, mm-hmm. smartphone penetration, you know, fire regulations, data sharing, all of that hadn't really come. So there are some people who had a little PTSD from that product. So there wasn't a lot of internal excitement around doing this. And I knew how to work with regulated industries. That was pretty much the only qualification I had to do this. And that mm-hmm. idea of being an outsider to healthcare actually really helped me a lot because I had no shame in asking the dumb questions. And I think sometimes that's really important in healthcare because when you've been in, in it too long, there's so much about, and I've been in it a long time now, but there's so much about the way that things operate that can be normalized. Mm -hmm. And when you come in as somebody from the outside, you realize, holy crap, this (laughs) is broken. Um, And so I would ask a lot of those questions and and I would spend my days talking to people smarter than me who knew more than I did. And guess what? They took those meetings, not because of me, but because I was Google's healthcare person. So at that stage, I got access to learn from some of the top executives at major health systems, at national payers, at pharma companies, and also meeting entrepreneurs because we were thinking about building versus buying, how could we partner? And all of that is what led me to venture. Number one, realizing where the white space was by virtue of talking to these key decision makers. Sometimes it takes people 20 years to be able to get access there. And I, Mm -hmm. I felt very lucky that I had that. And then two was meeting these entrepreneurs who in many cases were just getting started and who were able to achieve more with their small teams than my team of hundreds of engineers at Google. And not, not to say that, I mean, I had worked with some of the most brilliant people there, but there were another podcast again for another time, but there are many reasons why I think uh, innovation in some of these industries is quite hard in large companies. So ultimately it was meeting people like Aaron Bali from Carbon Health, who I met when he was just getting started back then. Um, and uh, that, that led me to this conviction that early stage venture with, and, and entrepreneurs were really what going to be the future of driving change in, in these industries. And I did what I've always done my whole life, which is connect people, mm-hmm. connect different stakeholders together. I did that as a journalist. I did that in government. That's literally what my job was, you know, par- partnerships, product partnerships at Google. And I did it for these entrepreneurs. And I did not have a lot of liquidity to be an investor, nor did I have an investor hat on. I really wish I did because I think I would have made a lot. Actually, I know I would have made a lot of money if I had even given 50 bucks to some of these guys back then. <laughs> Um, but instead, I connected them to the people I knew who happened to be investors. And some, m- many of those um, folks ended up making those investments, did quite well. And that's what eventually made me realize this is really fun. And mm-hmm. I think this is what I want to do um, for the rest of my life. And so that's eventually how I made my way to GV um, for a few years and then joined Lux um, in, uh, in 2019. That's great. And so you mentioned earlier, there's an advantage being a newbie in the industry and now you've been in industry long enough. How mm-hmm. do you keep yourself for, from being too jaded or cynical about, oh, you know, it's not going to work because you do need to have that 
That's a good question. Um, that's a very good question. Um, I think it's a, it's especially hard when I like see a product that I actually tried to launch myself. Um, you have to be an optimist in this job. You have to. And it's hard not to because you literally have the privilege of spending all day talking to people who are building the future, who are putting their life into, uh, you know, their life's work into the into their mission. So um, I think I mean, I am still an outsider. I don't see patients. I don't have an MD, uh, Mm -hmm. even though I like to pretend I do sometimes, Um, you know, um, and I and I haven't been doing this at least investing for 20, 30 years. So um, I have been in and around healthcare, but I've always been, you know, in a role that has been um, at an intersection in terms of partnership building, et cetera. So that helps a lot. But the other thing that helps is just, you know, um, spending time looking at other things like at Lux, you know, we are um, a a multi-stage, multi-sector firm. We we have investments in areas ranging from, you know, uh, robots and drones to infrastructure software, Web3, etc. And and we all look at all the opportunities. And so that really helps to keep it fresh for me so that when I am diving in my own world, which is mostly, although I look at other things too, largely digital health these days, I'm still able to bring the perspective on the other things that I see to that. And I will, you know, I've also invested in food tech. I've invested in uh, a little fintech as well and and education. And so, you know, I'm still able to to keep those um, Mm -hmm. intersections alive. Sounds like you have a fun job. (laughs) It's really fun. I feel very lucky. I've also never worked harder in my life. Uh, So it's not quite... um, I think what many people from the outside think venture is like, I still have to explain to my parents when I'm, you know, staying up all night, crashing on a deal and trying to convince the best entrepreneur that they should go with me and, you know, uh, and all of that, that it's not as simple as, um, as as it might seem, Uh, even though you're the one writing the check. um, You know, this is the the age that we're in now, there's a plethora of capital out there and um, it's, it's a, it's a hustle, but it's, it's a fun one. Yeah, well, that's good. So I know we're uh, uh, clo- uh, closing time, but I just want to make sure that we cover a couple things. Can you tell us more about Lux? And I think a lot of the entrepreneurs um, who are interested in, say, working with you is like, what stage do you guys come in? Like, is this more early or later? Or Absolutely. So Lux um, Capital, we have been around about 22 years, but we've evolved quite a bit over the course of those years. So the firm started off back in the day, I think the first fund was only $10 million. It was a small seed fund that our uh, my partners, Josh and Peter, in their early 20s had this ambitious idea that there was an opportunity to, to to invest in the earliest days of company building and entrepreneurs who were taking on matter that matters, who were, who were l- turning science fiction into fact, basically, you know, working on these incredible, ambitious projects. At the time, there wasn't really a clear venture return profile. So to their credit, I think they really helped to create a category, but it wasn't immediately up and to the right. It took a long time. And, you know, now we've evolved quite a bit. So um, we we currently have about a little over four billion uh, assets under management. We're investing out of our seventh venture fund, which is a six hundred and seventy five million dollar fund. And that's where we'll do everything from new co-incubation, you know, first capital in all the way through, you know, leading series Bs. Our sweet spot tends to be around that kind of, um, you know, late C to uh, series A. And we generally are lead investors, although there are certainly times where we've collaborated as well. And then we also have an $800 million opportunity fund, which is 
for doubling down on our existing winners, but also for making net new investments in companies that we should have done soon, earlier. So, you know, Carbon Health, which I mentioned is one of those. Maven Clinic, where we co-led the Series D, is another that we did at that stage. Everly Health, Commure, uh, and a number of others outside of health tech. But, you know, health tech, um, as we call it, really encompassing everything from biotech, you know, drug development and drug discovery, therapeutics, digital and traditional, all the way through software um, for pharma to care delivery, patient provider, all of that um, has been a part of the Lux investment strategy from the beginning, really. Um, and it and now is very much a, a big focus area um, for us. So yeah, but we get to do all sorts of other things too, and it's fun. Yeah. So one thing that, you know, there's a lot of talk about Digital health. I mean, I noticed that you also an investor in Waymark Care that focuses mm-hmm. in medical market. Can you tell us more about that and why why you picked that particular company? Oh yeah, that's an easy one. That's an easy one. Well, I, I'll say you know, in terms of my investment theses and the areas that I look at, ultimately, if, if you kind of go back to those early days that I sort of talked to you about uh, in terms of my childhood, it, it has been around this drive for impact and part of why I got excited about healthcare was because I saw that there was an opportunity where technology could help to drive better outcomes and better population health. Now, as I've, you know, gotten deeper in it, I recognize that it's not just technology and that there are fundamental infrastructure challenges, misaligned incentives, et cetera. And also that in this country, uh, you know, there is a significant portion of the population under Medicaid, under managed care that have not been um, receiving some of the, uh, the, the the sort of funding, the innovation, the technology. And so I think there's a huge opportunity there. The pandemic has certainly brought that to light in many ways. Um, I do a lot of work in women's health. It's uh, it's an area where, you know, we, we've made quite a few investments. Um, and as, as you may know, you know, uh, as much as one in two uh, babies, uh, you know, gets born under Medicaid there. So there's a lot of room for innovation there. Waymark was an easy one for me because I happened to be very, very, very close to the founder. Uh, one of the co-founders were Jai Batniji, who I've known for over 20 years, who I saw through the earliest days of, of his founding of Collective Health, who I knew when he was, you know, he, still in undergrad. Um, and, you know, a lot of this business is about the great ideas, but most of it is really about the great people. And, um, and, and, and he is one of those. And I saw the evolution of this idea through the trajectory of his experience as a practitioner, as an entrepreneur. Um, and there's no better person than this team, than him and really the entire team. He's brought some incredible folks to the table. Sanjay is, uh, is, is an absolute genius, you know, an MD, PhD, former epidemiologist who, who, who is bringing incredible uh, technical expertise to the table. Afia, who joined from Google Health, and I had the chance to, to, to uh, overlap with her. Just really an absolute dream team uh, working on this challenge. It, it is a hard one. It is very capital intensive. It will not be easy. Um, but uh, but I couldn't be more excited about um, about the team and 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 the opportunity ahead. Yeah. So I mean, you mentioned like you know a lot of investors. It's always says about the team, um, and sometimes it's always you know hard to pinpoint like what is it about the team. And one of the things that people, uh, if you can, I mean, you've seen a lot of uh, entrepreneurs. Um, you you've been one as well. In what are mistakes that every entrepreneur need to go through 
instead of avoid the mistake, but you know, you can you learned a lot from your mistake. Sure, you can avoid some, but then certain mistake, it's good to have gone through it in order to become a good entrepreneur. What are yeah. those? Well, how much time do we have? Because this could be a lot. Um, I, I, I can't address all of them, but I, you know, I, I will say just a few that are top of mind. Um, you know, I think um, holding on to an idea, even when all of the signs around you are showing the challenges there is something that is really hard. And that's why we recognize in our industry that the entrepreneur, the founder has to outlive the idea. Almost never will we see a pitch deck in the pre-seed stage that looks anything remotely like what it looks like, you know, at, at a growth or, you know, at, at, at exit. It will evolve. It has to evolve. That's part of the job. And so what we look for in founders are certainly you want to have the conviction. You want to have the drive. You want to you know, have this keep you up at night. You're not a hammer looking for a nail or, uh, you know, uh, somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur for the sake of doing it, but you are driven by a burning problem that you believe needs to be solved. So that's great, but you have to be adaptable uh, and willing to, to, um, to change as things come your way. Yeah, no, that that's a good one. And it's almost, it's almost also at the same time, you need to know whether this is something that you should start. I mean, obviously, when you were an undergraduate, you decide like this is something that maybe we should, you know, sell or should continue. Yeah, there. I mean, there's a lot of decisions you have to make. And I was just chatting with a founder the other day about this. Uh, you know, she's been an incredible, she's had an amazing trajectory and been an executive in many ways. But one of the things that struck her most as she's starting her own company is just the sheer amount of decisions you have to make on a daily basis. Um, and you know, she was sort of asking me, how do I navigate that? Because as you can imagine in my job, I have to decide probably a hundred times a day, am I going to take this meeting? Am I going to dive into this email? Am I going to do this? Am I going to do that? How are you? Um, and, and what I've learned, I'm still learning is, is again, that, that there is an element of instinct that is very important and tr- learning to trust that, um, is something that I think any entrepreneur also, um, learns over time as well. Um, mm-hmm. and and our instincts on entrepreneurs. And so that sort of synergy has to come together. You know, you can't really engineer your way out of your instinct. And then um, you can certainly, but that's not necessarily the wisest thing to do. Not to say you should be impulsive, but the element of instinct and gut is really important. And I think it's also instinct and gut is something that you've been collecting a lot of database in your brain. Yes. It's not that you just do it. Sometimes you can't pinpoint because there's so much data that you've collected in your brain. Right, exactly. So my instinct might not have been on, you know, a point when I was 22 or even 25, but all these varied experiences kind of give you that sort of um, ability to um, to know even before you really know. Yeah, yeah. So, well, that's great. Well, thanks so much uh, for sharing your story and your insight. Thank you for everything you're doing and for hearing my story. And um, I hope to chat with you again sometime soon. That's great. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.